Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and to look at your word and to finish off the story of Gideon. And as we go through the book of Judges, we ask you to guide and lead us as we look at this. In your son's name, amen. All right, we're going to be in Judges chapter 8, but we do want to kind of lay out some foundation here because there's some facts about chapter 8 that, are, that come out. I've given you two maps to look at. The first one is this very brightly colored one, and it shows you the various tribes of Israel and this little yellow crescent-type thing is Issachar. That is where Gideon is from. And in the end of chapter 6, he calls Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Nephedali to come and help him. Well, Manasseh's here, Zebulun's here, Asher's here, Nebulon's here, and Naphtali is right here. So he calls all the people, all the tribes nearest him to come and help. The one that he did not call initially for helping is Ephraim, and Ephraim is going to get mad at him for not having called them to help originally. Uh, and that's what this story is all about in this one. Uh, Ephraim is this pink one right below, right below him. So, uh, and Ephraim probably should have been called, but he called everybody who was directly surrounding him to come, come to battle. And remember, from those uh, tribes that he called, 32,000 people come. And God says, you got too many people. And he says, you know, tell people if they're afraid to go home. 22,000 go home, <laughs> and which leaves them with 10,000. God says, you still have too many. And then he gets rid of all but 300, which then leads us into the battle that we had talked about last week where the 300 uh, win the battle. And they start chasing the people. And they start calling to the people. Yeah, after, they, after the Amalekites start running and the Midianites start running, he goes, OK, the rest of you come on and help. And Ephraim is called, and Ephraim is going to uh, get to the ford and keep them from crossing the ford, as we see in, in this, uh, at, the, at the end of last chapter. And they took the two princes, uh, Zeb and Oreb, and, you know, and they're going to get a little upset and bent out of shape. Now on this other map, I know it's much harder to read because it's so small. But right above the S and the R of Israel is the city, is Mount Morah, which is where the Battle of Gideon takes place, which is just outside his house. So if you go just above from the S and the R, you'll see Mount Morah, hopefully. <laughs> I'm not sure if you all can see it. And that's where the battle is taking place. Uh, and it's right under the, right under Issachar. It's right under Issachar. Hill of Mora, excuse me. That's, that's the area that this battle takes place of the 300. And here, in this big circle that I've made down across the Jordan, is where we're going to talk about today. Sokoth, Penel, and uh, Jakbetha. <laughs> All right, so if you see, see Succoth right across the right, right under the L, down down under the L by about a half an inch. <laughs> okay, they're going to chase them all the way from that mount, all the way across the river, and all the way to Succoth Penel, and then further over into to uh, Beth uh, Jacques Bethel. <laughs> so just wanted to get you some distance and perspective. I mean, this was a battle where they're, I mean, these guys chased each other for long distances on, on these battles. And it, this is uh, kind of an amazing thing. And remember, this battle starts, the get, battle in Gideon with the 300 starts in the wee hours of the morning. You know, and we're talking the early, early morning hours, and they break those lanterns and wake everybody up with the trumpets, and they start killing each other, and they start running for their lives after they've killed each other. And they're going to run for the Jordan and run, run for these cities. So I just wanted to show this idea of how many miles we're talking about. You know, it's about, about, 50, about 50, 60 miles just to get to Sukkoth. And then they got to fight the battle. 
and then they're still well they're being they're being fought as they're being chased so and they're going to go another 30 or 40 miles to get to the other towns that they're going to finally get stopped at so this is a big deal long distances and i just wanted you to see see this i wanted you to see where they where he called for the people and why he called for the people that he called and because it wouldn't have done much sense for him to call you know we're going to go to battle let's get benjamin to come <laughs> You know, Benjamin, that, the most southern tribe, you know, and we're way up here, he's going, let's get Benjamin to come help us, or, or Judah. And so we see that he called the most logical people to come and help, and Ephraim's going to get a little upset, as we see in this chapter. So chapter 8 of Judges starts. And the men of Ephraim said unto him, Why have you served us thus, that you called us not when you went to fight with the Midianites? And they did chide with him sharply. And when he said... And he said unto them, What have I done now in comparison to you? Is not the gleanings of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abizar? God hath delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, and what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger was abated toward him when he had said that. All right, so we get the Ephraimites coming. They, they get to guard the, the ford, and they're going to capture the two princes. And, but they get upset. And this is kind of something you see oftentimes amongst church members. The church will go forward. People don't want to do something. But then after they start seeing the victories from God, they kind of join in and say, well, why didn't you bring us in? Why didn't you get us involved? And I've heard that more than once. You know, we, well, we invited you and you didn't want to when you thought there was going to be a hard time getting it off the ground. And now that it's off the ground, you're wanting to be part of it. And that's kind of where they were with the Ephraimites. You know, uh, there was a battle. You, you didn't really respond. You could have responded. You've heard, you heard the, the trumpets and the calls to battle, uh, and you didn't. But Gideon is kind of nicer than, than that. He's very diplomatic. He goes, you know, hey, we went to battle, but you got the princes. You got the princes and, and, and killed, you know, and con you know, captured them and, and took their armed guard. You know, what did I do? I just... I just made a loud noise up on the mountainside and scared everybody, and they all fought each other. You know, I've been chasing them ever since. Uh, you, 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 got, you got actual victory. And you know, Gideon could have just told him, you know, well, go mind your own business. You, know, you, you didn't come when you were called, and you didn't want to help. You didn't want to help. But he, he makes a good leader. I mean, he makes a good leader, and he's gentle with them, even in spite of their uh, arguing with him, chiding with him. Basically, they're also saying, well, who are you? You know, we're, we're, we're Ephraim. We're, we've been in battle. We're, we're, we're well known for our battle. And who are you to be leading? Well, he's the one that God called. <laughs> he's the one that God called. And he's the one that stood up when they didn't stand up. And so, but he's just so gentle. You know, and he said, you know, what have I done? You know, I just surrounded them and made a lot of noise. And they, and they ran away. You actually got the, the princes and captured them. You, you had the great glory, you know, I'll, and you know, it's kind of an interesting thing, you know, how many times, and we see this often amongst Christians, somebody gets upset that somebody else has glory in something they do for God. And you know, if we're really just serving God, it doesn't matter who gets glory and, and what happens, it's because God gets the glory. That's basically what Gideon's saying, God gets the glory. I just, you know, all I did was scare these guys and make them run. And you get to capture them. He had a right understanding of who he was in God's kingdom. And, you know, he's been all this way through. Remember when he first was called, he's hiding, threshing wheat. And the angel calls him, you valiant man of God. Then he goes in secret to tear down the temple, the, the altar of Baal, and, the, and cut down the groves for Astaroth. And his father defends him even then because he's still not very brave at that point. And then he gets ready to call, call the people for this battle. He calls them, and then he goes in with second thoughts and, and puts the fleece out that we talked about. And then God says, okay, you got way too many people. We've got to get this down so that you, that you know it's me. Yeah. And we talked about that. He has 32,000 people against 175,000 people. And God says, you've got too many people. They, they outnumber you six to one, but you've got way too many people because you might think somehow you, you did it. Now, how they could think that, I don't know, but God says, we're going to really get this down. We're going to get this down to a place where you're going to know that it's me that made this victory. And it says that the people 
were content. He was able to calm them down. And good leaders do this all the time, whether it's in the church or in the business or in the, you know, a leader can calm people down in many cases. Because Gideon could have just said, you know, hey, God, God's the one, God called me, and if you, uh, you don't like it, you know, tough. And he'd have had a hard time with Ephraim from that point forward. And yet he just kind of spoke softly with them. Later on, we're going to see somebody who didn't speak softly with the guys that did the same thing that happened with Gideon. And, you know, he goes to battle and, and they have a, you know, conflict. But Gideon shows wisdom. You know, these are his brothers complaining, you know, fellow Israelites complaining. And he does what it takes to calm them down. You know, you know, like, who am I? You know, you, you guys got the great victory. Verse 4. And Gideon came to Jordan, passed over. He and the 300 men that were with him were faint, yet pursuing them. And he said unto the men of Succoth, Give, I pray you, loaves of bread unto the people that follow me, for they be faint, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zamunna, the kings of the Midian. Media, Midian. And the princes of Sukkah said, Are the hands of Zuba and Zumunna now in your hand, that we should give you bread unto your army? And Gideon said, Therefore, when the Lord has delivered Zuba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will tear your flesh with the thorns from the wilderness and with, by, and with the briars. Okay? Uh, so here we are. This is why I showed you this other map. He's traveled some 60 or so miles to get here, and I'm sure it wasn't a straight line, so it was probably more than 60 miles. His, him and his 300 men are chasing the remnants of an army, which we're going to find out later on, is still numbering up around 10,000 people. Uh, so 300 people plus, plus the people he's gathered. But after having chased these people for about 60 miles, he comes into Sukkoth and says, hey, give us a little food and water. We're, you know, we're chasing these guys. We're chasing the enemy, and they're running. Uh, give us a little food because we're tired. You know, we're weary. And I think I'd be weary too if I had just, you know, run for 50 or 60 miles. And I can't even picture running 50 or 60 miles in one, in one day. And yet, you know, it kind of makes you wonder, these guys had to be in shape. Yeah, you know, these guys had to be in shape, you know, to be able to do this. Yeah, it's down, it's down there in the, Gad, in the area of Gad. Uh, yeah, on the color map, it's just there in the top portion of Gad. This, this thing has just about the same thing in here. Yeah. Well, rather than having everybody open up the back of their Bible, which may or may not have the map that shows you anything, I, I print some maps out every once in a while just to show us. So, Sukkoth leaders basically are saying, okay, they've had us into captivity for, you know, under subjection for several decades, and you think we're going to help you? You know, you only got 300. They just ran through with 10,000 headed toward home. And they're going to come back with a big army. And they're going to destroy your 300. And anybody that helped the, helps you are going to be destroyed. So they're going, no, we're not helping you. So they didn't feel no brotherhood. No brotherhood. Uh, no help. You know, the Gadites didn't feel. And in one sense, it makes sense. They're the one closest to Midia. Yeah. When some Midianites come back, they're going to be the first one to get struck. And... So in their kind of, they're kind of saying, it's like, you know, we don't know who you are. You're an upstart. Uh, you're causing trouble. How many times have we heard that statement around news and everything when somebody stands up for their rights? You're just causing trouble. Uh, we hear that even when Christians stand up for your rights, their rights. Well, you're just trying to cause trouble for all of us other Christians because you're, you're standing up for what God says is right. And, and we hear this all the time. In a church that preaches that sin is sin, You'll have all kinds of ch Christians and churches saying, well, you guys really should soften your view because, you know, it, we, we should be maturing and, and, and evolving and believing that Bible stuff is crazy. And, you know, if you haven't heard it, you will hear it. The more you take a stand for God, the more you're going to hear this kind of stuff. And this is exactly what they're saying. Uh, uh, hey there, uh, Gideon, uh, who are you to cause all this trouble for the rest of Israel? These guys have been taking all of our stuff and taking all of our food and destroying all of our products, but they've kept us alive. Now you've gone and stirred up a hornet's nest, and they're going to come and 
try to beat us, you know, beat us now physically as well as just taking away our economics. And that's not exactly what they said, but basically that's what they said. You know, are these guys in your hand? We should help you. Have you killed them? They're, they're running that way. They're ahead of you. And I know that's ad-libbing a little bit, but that's really what they were saying. Yeah. They got a head start. They're going to get home before you get, catch up with them, and they're going to come back. And if we've helped you, we're going to be in trouble. And this is something that happens all the time in our world. Christians get accused of stirring up trouble. But even on a more practical thing, there are a lot of people who will never speak up against crime because they're so afraid of retaliation, especially if they live in a gang-ridden area. And if you say something and they, and, you don't, and they don't get all the gang and you get found out that you're the one that told them on them, the retaliation, that's basically what they're saying. You don't have these guys in your hand yet, and they're going to come back. And, they, and it's an understandable fear. It really is an understandable fear. But this is something we've talked many times. Do we believe God's word and what God has said? It doesn't say whether the guys that were running stopped in the same town and asked for challenge. No, it doesn't say, well, they would have just taken it anyway. They wouldn't have asked. They're, they're the Midianites. They would have just taken it because they've been taking everything all along for, for several decades. So. Yeah, there's, there's plenty of them. There's plenty of them to just take what they want. Yeah. Uh, but basically they're saying, you know, hey, you know, we don't, we don't believe that you're called by God. We don't believe that God told you to do this, and now you're just stirring up trouble, and you don't have these guys in your hands, so we're not going to help you. I love Gideon's response in, in verse 7. It's kind of harsh, but he goes, Therefore, when... The Lord has delivered Zila and uh, Zalmunna. He goes, not if, when. How much has he grown in these short, short periods of these verses? From a man who's ter- terrified to even tear down the idol and even afraid to go into battle until he goes down into the valley and hears them talk about the divisions they're having that God's delivered them into their hand, he has become a man of great valor and faith. And here he's chasing these people, and he says, hey, when I come back with them, I'm going to deal with you. And he, you know, and he says, then will I tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Now, I don't know if that means he was going to make them run through the briars or if they were going to use the briars as whip or how it was going to be, but he was going to really physically hurt them and punish them. And uh, it kind of sounds awful to me, whether, whether he made them run through the briars, because I've, I've been in the middle of a, a huge blackberry briar patch, and uh, those things are not you know, fun if you're trying to stand up. We, when I was younger, we were crawling underneath the bri- briars, but every once in a while, you'd get caught with one of those briars. And here he's saying, you know, I'm gonna, you're going to pay the price. And I love this. It says, when. He's gone from a man of no faith to an extreme faith. You know, God told him he was going to deliver him. He heard the people with the dream saying that God was going to deliver him. And now he's watching them run away from him and his 300 men. And he's going, when God has delivered him, I'm going to come back and take care of you. All right? And uh, verse 9, And when he went from thence to Peniel and spoke to them likewise, the men of Peniel answered and said to him, as the men of Succoth had, and he said unto the men of Penel, saying, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. And Penel is another, oh, 10 miles further than Succoth. If you look at that map, it's about 10 miles further. So his men are hungry. They're tired. They're, they just want a little bit, little bit of food. And they go another 10 miles, and the next town tells them, Sorry, Charlie. <laughs> you, know, you, don't, you don't have these leaders, and we're, we're closer to, to them than... Then Succoth was, and we're not going to help you. We're not going to be known as somebody that helped. This is a really sad thing. And then he says, okay, when I come back, I'm going to destroy your tower, your defense, because we've talked it several times. These cities would build towers, and the towers had two purposes. You'd put somebody up high where they could see a lot further out. And these towers were oftentimes built. You'd have the city that was walled with, with towers on the walls, and then you had outpost towers so that the farmers, if they all of a sudden got attacked, if they couldn't make it back to the city, they'd run for these towers. And the towers would have narrow slits and one door that could be barred with a heavy bar, usually had ornament in it so that you could 
attack the enemy trying to take you down. But these towers were all over the land as protection for the, for the locals. And it says, you know, you've got a tower here. I'm going to tear it down. You know, he's getting pretty bold here at this point. You know, he's getting very bold here. He said, and again, it's when I come back in peace. Not if I come back, but when I come back in peace. I'm going to chase these guys. I'm going to get them. And when I come back, I'm going to tear down your tower. In other words, he says, your, your strength, you think you're strong. I'm going, to, I'm going to show you you're not strong. And again, this whole idea of, you know, who are you stirring up this hornet's nest? And many people would probably be doing the same thing. They're, they're calling out. And the Midianites have come a long way to get and ravish the produce and all the stuff going on in, in Israel. They've come from the other side of the desert through all these tribes that we we're just talking about and they've been destroying things as they go along and stripping everything out and they get to where they're going and remember when we started in chapter 6 it said they kept coming in at harvest time and, and either taking or destroying everything Israel was growing so that they were starving them, they were starving them to death basically uh, and they called it taking their taxes. <laughs> But, you know, the, the Israelites called, you're taking everything. So they came all the way from Midian? Yeah, Midian, which is way off yeah. of our map, way off of our map. And they came all the way across and north. So we see this huge problem that they have. And so in verse 10, now Ziba and Zulmina were in Qatar, and their host was with them about 15,000 men. And all that were left of the host of the children of the east, for there fell 120,000 men that drew a sword. All right, so Qatar is not on either one of these maps, but the next town over that they're going to talk about is Jugberam, uh, which is about 20 miles southeast of Punel. If you see it there. So they're, again, char chasing after these guys. This is a long trip. These guys are going to travel 80 to 100 miles to, to chase after us. These guys are chasing them for almost 100 miles. And it seems like it's one day, by the way it's written. 15,000 men here that uh, they're chasing after. So they're not moving real fast. You know, the 15,000 is not moving as fast as the 300 men can move. And he's chasing after them. There is... 120,000 people that are dead already. Sure. And that was when the 300 surrounded the 135,000 and, and they got scared and they started fighting each other and attacking each other. You know, what, a, what an easy vic victory Gideon had. You know, he just watched them all have, have a fight down below killing each other because of their fear and their, their terror that they had. And then they start running and probably lose several as they're running. And the Ford that... Uh, Ephraim was guarding. They lost the two princes and probably lost men just crossing the ford. So there's been battles as they've been running on the west side of Jordan. The east side doesn't sound like they've risen up to battle. And uh, they have some fear. And it's natural that they have fear. They're, they're the ones closest to these guys when they finally come back. You know, the, east side, the west side of the Israel has the Jordan and they can guard themselves by the Jordan. These guys have no guard, no protection. So they are a little more nervous, and it's natural that they would have these fears because, remember, they've been following idols. They have no, con no belief in God at this point. And remember when Gideon first talked to the angel, he goes, where has this God been that delivered Israel and shook us across the Jordan and destroyed Egypt? All these things that we've been hearing our fathers talk about, where, where have you been, God? <laughs> you know, and he's forgetting that they don't deserve God's help at all because of their sin. It's an interesting, long battle that they're fighting. And God had to give them, give them strength to do this. And I said this several times, when they went to battle, part of the payment for these people to go to war was the spoils. They got to get to keep whatever the enemy had on them. Gideon gets a pretty good uh, collection himself. All right, verse 13. And Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle. Oops. Let's go back to 11. And Gideon went up by the way that dwelt from them on the east side of Nobah of Jogbeha and smote the host of the, for the host was secure. And when Ziba and Zala 
Munah fled, he pursued after them and took the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunah, and discomforted the, all the host. So Gideon comes upon them while they're secure. In other words, while they were camping. They were setting up camp, and him and his 300 men and however many other men that joined him at this point come upon the 15,000 while they're camping and just kept attacking. Yeah, they, there's some boldness here. And it's kind of amazing when you start reading the scriptures where God will talk about one man killing 100 to uh, 200 people, and God is giving them the strength to do this. It is not something that you, you don't, even if it's just the 300, let's say you even picked up another 1,000 or 2,000 people, that's still not a very large army to go in and, and attack 15,000. He catches up with them while they're camped and, and, and prepared and they're secure, they're they're basically relaxing, having dinner, whatever. You know, maybe even have taken their armor off after having run for so long a period of time. All of a sudden, Gideon and whatever men are with him fall upon them and discomfort them, which means totally beats them. Like smote. Smote, yeah, discomforted, smote. Discomforted is slightly stronger than just smote. I mean, he came in with a vengeance, and very few people would have left. And the kings run. These are pretty brave kings, you can see. They've been running ever since, ever since the Mount, <laughs> Mount Mora. And uh, they've been running ever since. And the first time they get attacked in the middle of the night, they run. Uh, if they had ever conquered their fear and got their army together, they might have been able to stand up and fight. But God speaks all the time that one will put 100 to, to, uh, to flee, and that 10 will put 1,000, and you know, 100 will put 10,000 to, to flight. Gideon and his people have God behind them. And it is quite possible that there was angelic forces involved with this battle that helped, helped the destruction of these people. And, you know, it doesn't talk about them, but uh, it's quite possible that they had protection and, and you know, weapons were not touching them that should have touched them. And, and they were getting greater victory than they ever could have done alone. Well, even coming up on the 15,000 men, they didn't have watchers out. Or just overwhelmed the watch so fast that they didn't have time to. There's no way 15,000 people should be afraid of this army that's chasing after them. It seems to he's only gotten 300, even though it says he's called people to his side. We know Ephraim Ephraim responded because they took and guarded the ford. All right, so they catch up with them finally after about 100 miles. And so it's been at least one day because they catch them camping. You know, God strengthens them, so it's not... Yeah, it started in the middle of the night, the middle of the night, and they're going to catch them as they're camping. So we're talking 15, 20 hours that they've been chasing them. Let's say 20 hours for 100 miles. That's five, five miles and, you know, for each hour. That's possible. But it would have taken God to give them that strength. But remember, we talked about this back in Joshua's day, when we were in the book of Joshua, how these guys were chasing them, again, 60, 80 miles. And God gave them the extended day where they could chase them and, and continue, which meant that God had to strengthen them enough to be able to fight for two full days yeah. and chase their enemy. Yeah, to run 100 miles and fight. And fight at the same time. We're, we're talking about... We're talking about something that is pretty miraculous. God has his hand in this. And, you know, when I break it down to about a 20-hour day, because they did attack them in the middle of the watch, and they're catching them when they're secure in camp, not expecting to be attacked, you know, besides which they're exhausted. They may not have even set a watch. Okay. We've been running for 20 hours, you know, scared to death. The adrenaline was running high, and they get to some place where they think they're safe, set up some temp tents and just fall exhausted. Yeah, because they're, the... they're almost home. Yeah. <laughs> they're almost out of Israel. And so it is possible they didn't set a watch up. It could be that they were just so exhausted. God has made them more tired than they should be after 20 hours. He's given strength to the Israelite army to come in and they're catching them while they're, while they're asleep and just, you know, how many people can you kill when you're, when you're hitting them while they're exhausted and asleep? All right, verse 13. And Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle before the sun was up. Okay, he's run for 20 hours, destroyed these guys as he gets to their camp, and comes back the same night. 
Okay, he, before the sun is up, so he's going for more than 24 hours by the sound of everything. And he's coming back before the sun comes up. This is kind of an amazing thing. He's doing a long day. And you get a picture, God has got to be doing a miraculous thing here because he's not going to be nice when he gets back. Okay, he is not done with his day yet and it's obvious that he hasn't slept very much, if at all, during that night after, after having a pitched battle from the middle of the night, sometime around midnight, two o'clock in the morning, chasing these guys to the place where they make camp, destroying them, capturing the two kings, and going back to Sukkoth before the next day starts. Okay, and who knows how long he was up the day before all of this battle started. In verse 14, and he caught a young man of the men of Sukkoth and inquired of him, and he described unto him the princes of Sukkoth, and the elders thereof were 70, 77 men. And when he came unto the men of Sukkoth, he said, Behold, Ziba and Zumanna, with whom you did upbraid me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna in your hand, that we should go give bread unto you, to your men that are weary? And he took the elders of the city, and thorns of the wilderness, and briars, and with them he taught the men of Succoth, and he beat down the tower of Peniel and slew the men of the, of that, of the city. All right, he's in battle lust at this point, uh, but he, is, he catches somebody outside of Succoth and says, okay, describe all the leaders of your town. I want to make sure I get all of them. And tells them, gives them descriptions and where, you know, where they lived or whatever, however it was that he identified them and told them that there were 77 leaders in that town, which means it was a pretty good size town to have 77 elders. This is not a small place. And we're gonna see that city all through the Old Testament, so we know it's not a small town. It's a pretty good town for 77 elders. And he comes in and he says, hey, here, here's their heads, here's their bodies or whatever. He goes, I've got them and you made fun of me, you, you, you said you wouldn't help because I didn't have them. And he goes, here they are. And you know, again, it talks about the thorns of the wilderness, and I don't know if he made some kind of whip using them or, you know, but basically it says, if in New Testament terms, he scourged them. Okay, he is scourging them with these thorns. And, you know, and I love the way it says, he taught them. <laughs> You know, uh, next, time, next time God asks you to do something, follow through. <laughs> literally, literally, it means to uh, the whole idea of uh, correction. Correction. And it's, it's more than just talking, teaching a lesson. It is discipline. And basically saying next time you're asked to do something for God, you, you need to go out and do it. And... Uh, and then the, just a real quick sentence, he beat down the tower of Penula and slew the men of that city. Okay, he's even harder on them. Uh, he's harder on them. These guys he just scourges, believes their city. Here he kills all the men of a city. Now maybe he's tired or angry with them. Maybe they were more harsh with them. It doesn't really tell us. You know, it does say that they answered him in the same way as Succoth does. I have a feeling they might have been a little nastier, a little, a little harsher on to him and his men because his punishment is so much harsher than it was to Succoth. There he just, you know, scourges them and here he actually kills. And it says not just the leaders, but all the people. So I have a feeling that Penel, all the people came out, you know, to, to give him a hard time about why did you, why did you stir up this hornet's nest and you're causing trouble and these guys are going to come back and I think that's why he was much stronger. How do you tear down a tower with 300 men? I don't know. You said that one town was quite a large population. Well, 77 leaders, it has to be a large population. Definitely harder on Pinnell than he, than he was the Sukkoth. Verse 18, then said he unto Ziba and Zebnuna, what manner of men were they which you slew in Tabor? And they answered, as you are, for so, they, so were they, each one resembled the children of a king. And he said to them, they were my brothers, even the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would, have, I would not slay you. 
And he said unto the, to Jether his firstborn, Up and slay them. But the youth drew not his sword, for he feared, because he was, a, he was yet a youth. And Ziba and Z Zalmunah said, Rise you and fall upon us. As for the man, for as a man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and slew Ziba and Zalmunah and took away the ornaments that they were on their camels' necks. All right. So he's got them, and obviously he took them captive. He wanted to show these two cities. Uh, you wanted to see them in my hand? Here they are. They are in my hand. I've got them roped up, you know, strapped up, however he had them you know, conquered, but they were in his hands. And he tells his son to, you know, first he questions them, you know, what kind of people did you kill? You know, who were the people that you killed? And, and they looked at him and said, people like you. Yeah. yeah, people that looked a lot like you. Yeah, yeah and they apparently think he's a king because they said they resembled the children of a king. In other words, they looked a lot like you. They must have been your family. They're taunting him. They are not expecting him to kill them in cold blood. You know, they, they've been the, the masters for so long over them. They, are, they have a great arrogance, arrogancy in this. You know, hey, they were, they were your family. Is what they're saying. You know, they looked like you. They looked a lot like you. You know, they were they were Israelites. They, yeah. You know, they they looked they looked a lot like you. And there's an arrogancy here. And this happens oftentimes when people have had dominion over people, even when things start to fall apart for them, they maintain this arrogancy of we are better than you are. Uh, in the South, after the slaves were freed and they were given rights. Many of the Southerners still treated them as if they were beneath them and didn't have rights and wouldn't let them. And this is kind of what they're saying. You're our slaves. You know, you, you know, who do you think you are to, to be putting your hands on us? You know, we just killed a bunch of your things. And, and he said, well, you killed my family. If you had left them alive, I probably would have let you go. But as it is, you're going to die. And, you know, and I don't know if he would have let them go or not. <laughs> Probably not after having chased them that far and, and watched everything they did. But he's at least telling them, hey, if you'd have had some mercy, I'd have had mercy on you. And, and he turns to his son and says, kill these guys. And I don't know how young a youth is. Uh, for their day, youth is pretty young because you've got to remember it, in that day and age, at 12 years old, you were considered an adult and you would be getting your business and and getting married shortly as soon as you had your business set up. So when they say youth, they're probably talking about somebody about 10, 11, 12, maybe 13. You know, he's very young, and he's saying, kill these people. And it's not easy for most men to kill, kill another person. So it's you know, pretty tough, and he's going to no, I can't do this. I, I, they probably had no problem while they were killing before. It was battle. battle. It's one thing to kill somebody in battle. It's a whole other thing to kill them outside of battle. And most people have a hard time even in battle to kill somebody. So, and who knows whether his son has killed anybody up till this point. It doesn't tell us. But in cold blood, his son's not willing to, to do it. And then we see this taunt from them. Okay, they're still taunting Gideon. You know, uh, rise up yourself and fall upon us if you're, if you're a man and think you have the strength to do it, basically is what they're saying. Well, they don't expect him to. Again, he has been the slave. They have been the masters. And the masters are very sure of themselves. And they haven't, you know, they've lost their battle. They've lost, they've lost 135,000 men. And yet, as you said, they're being very brave, very, very mouthy. Number one, they don't have anything to lose at this point. If he kills them, they're hoping that it's quick. They definitely don't want to be tortured. Even if he releases them, it's not really what they want because they're going to go back as defeated kings. And there's nothing worse for a king than to go back defeated, especially by a smaller army. Okay. And just a little while before, they were referring to him as a, a king or... Yeah. But they know he has a small army. You know, he's, he's somebody that they're not expecting. And if he is a king, he should be respecting the lives of other royalty in their mind. You know, kings, it wasn't so long ago that if you were royalty in a battle, you were off limits 
for attack unless it was an accident. Okay, uh, and even as far back as the 1600s and 1500s and 1700s when we were fighting the Revolutionary War, you did not attack a officer. That's why the British soldiers rode on horses and had all their pretty armament and, and everything. You know, in Europe, you did not attack an officer. Why? Because they were a cousin. Now, our, our army in America basically said, well, you know, if we shoot the officers, the people will be without officers, and it'll take them six months to get new officers here to take their place, and we shot officers. We forced the, the British off their horses and taking off their pretty decorations identifying themselves as officers. And this is a day when, all the way back here, royalty, you know, pretty much was still related. You sent your, your, your daughters off to be, be the uh, linking the two royal families. And even though Israel hasn't had this linkage, they're still in their mindset, hey, if he's a king, he's not going to kill us, especially not in cold blood. He might have killed us in, a, in the battle, but he's not going to kill us in cold blood. So that's part of their mindset. Plus, they've been the masters. You know, over the, over the servants, they're going, hey, you know, we can taunt him. He's not going to stand up against us. And he gets the last word because he, he ends up killing them. And uh, he kills them. He takes away their, their gold and silver. And he takes this, the gold off of their, their camels. So here's, here's his first real prize. I don't think he's stopped anywhere up till this to start pulling spoils, but here's his first spoils, and he gets the spoils from the king, uh, from the kings. Verse 22, then the men of Israel said unto Gideon, rule over us, both you and your son, and your son's sons also, that, for you have delivered us from the hand of the Midians. And Gideon said unto them, I will not rule over you, neither shall my son rule over you, the Lord will rule over you. Okay. Here is the first request for a king that we, we basically have come across. Gideon, you are such a victorious person. You got rid of these people. Be our king. That's what it says. You rule over us and your sons. Up to this time, they just had judges. And Gideon correctly tells them, I will not be a king. God is our, God is our ruler. And at this point, Gideon is being a righteous man. Okay? And remember, Gideon has been raised in an idol-worshiping family. God has called him. He is seeking out to be God, and he's very righteous at this point, saying, God's our leader. I'm just, I'm just a man, and I don't want to be king of, your, of the people because we're not supposed to have a king. And we're going to find out at the end of Judges, we're going to see a king be asked for and given to them by God. But he says, only God will be your ruler. At this point, Gideon is being a righteous man and saying, I'm going to follow God. I'm going to obey God. God said, he's our, he's our leader. He's given us judges. And I, I you know, probably I'll be content to be the judge. I, I'll rule. And he doesn't do a very good job at that either, as we'll find out. Uh, but Gideon in verse 24 says, And Gideon said unto them, I have one, I desire one request of you, that, that you give me every man the earrings of his prey, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a garment and cast therein every man the earrings of his prey. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold besides the ornaments and collars and purple raiment that was of the kings of Midian and beside the chains that were on their camel's necks. All right, so here we see Gideon saying, okay, Here's my reward. Just give me the earrings. And how big these earrings were, I don't know. But he, he's going to get 1,700 shekels of gold. And if you want to know what that is in, in our weight, it's just over 67 pounds of gold. Wow. All right, it's 67 and a quarter pounds of gold. This is a lot of gold, uh, a lot of earrings. Well, they were probably good size earrings. They were probably nice hoop earrings that you see sometimes in the older shows and stuff. They were, these weren't just little posts. Uh, 
And the ring, earrings probably had something to show with rank and, and authority and wealth. And he's getting this stuff, and, and he gets ornaments, which are crescent-shaped things that they would wear, that that army wore to protect their necks, a crescent-shaped uh, metal ornament. And collars, which are their chains and pendants. And these guys back then, apparently, from everything you read about these battles, went to war really decked out with all their wealth that they had. Uh, so that when they died, their family didn't get it, the enemy got it. It doesn't make much sense, but this is what, this is what we see over and over. And then he gets the purple clothes that the kings had and the chains and they're around their camels' necks. So he is pretty wealthy at this point. 67 pounds of gold was worth a lot even then. It's worth a lot nowadays, but it's worth a lot then. And that was his reward. This is the reward that he takes. And they give it to him willingly. He refuses to be a king, but he takes a great reward from them. Verse 37, here is where we see Gideon being rather stupid. <laughs> and Gideon made an ephod thereof and put it in a city, even in Ophrah. And all Israel went thither a whoring after it, which thing became a snare unto Gideon and to his house. He makes a golden tunic. Now, I can't imagine a tunic made out of gold. Uh, an ephod. We've talked about this before. An ephod is a, a kind of an apron-like thing. The priest usually wore ephods, and they would have pockets in them, and they allowed them to have their priestly garments, and then they would have the ephod over it that would be normally made out of linen. And I don't know if this was a hard ephod that he made or if he spun, in, spun the gold into a fine fiber and, and mixed it in with, you know, it doesn't really tell us. But... Uh, He's going to make this ephod. And it says that the children of Israel go a whoring. They start worshiping where that ephod is. And whether they were worshiping the ephod itself or if Gideon was using this and setting up an alternate temple type thing, it's, you know, we don't know what his intention was on this. We don't know if he was just trying to make a memorial you know, to his battle and keep it there, but it ended up becoming a snare unto them, and they worshipped it. In Hezekiah's day, he destroys the bronze serpent. Does everybody remember what the bronze serpent was? When they were going through the wandering of the desert, the snakes came in, and God told Moses to make a bronze serpent and stick it up on a post, and if they would just look at that bronze serpent, they would be healed. Well, between the time that Moses did that and Hezekiah destroyed it, the people started worshiping the bronze serpent. It became an idol. And they remembered the powers and the stories about how it healed sickness. Hezekiah is going to destroy that later on. And we don't know if Gideon was just trying to be noble and say, I just want a memorial for my, my battle, or if he was trying to reestablish his Baal worship in, in his household or what. We don't know exactly why. But it became something that the children of Israel worshipped or went to with a worshipping attitude and nowhere in here does it ever say why he did this you know, why did he make this gold ephod it never tells us and I find no reference to it anywhere else so it kind of just other than this the people went a whoring after it in some place someplace, somewhere somebody would have destroyed it to, that had a righteous following of God but you know, this is kind of back down to his downfall. You know, for, for this period of, a, of 24 hours to a couple weeks, he seems to be really on fire for God. And then he seems to back off from his being on fire for God. And this is a sad thing that we see so often with a lot of Christians. They get really on fire for God. They serve God with great passion. And then they get complacent about God. And complacent is one thing, but usually they also start drifting down away from God so often. And my prayer for myself and all those that I have any say in discipling is that we stay the course, that we finish well. That was Paul's prayer, that I have finished well. I don't, I don't have anybody's blood on my hands, and I have done well. I've kept, I've kept the race, and that was his encouragement to Timothy. Run the race well and keep following after it. 
And it's really sad to me over the years how many people I've seen that just kind of fall, fall by the wayside. Yeah, they're really on fire for God. And you, and you don't want to think that, they've, you know, that they were never saved or anything, but it, they just drift away from God and get a little complacent, get a little bit of pride, and say, I can do these things. And Satan, once you get that pride, you're in trouble. You know, once you think you can do something for God, you're in a lot of trouble because that is when you're going to be at this place where all, all kinds of things happen. You start making decisions that are bad decisions because they're not godly. And here, Gideon makes a decision that's bad. Now, why? We don't know. Again, I read all kinds of speculation. Some people think he just wanted a memorial. Some people are really blunt that he was reestablishing Baal worship in his, you know, in his family. But he creates this ephod out of gold, and it's going to be the downfall, at least for Israel. They're going to start worshiping it. We're going to try to finish this last up. This way, thus were the Midianites subdued, and the children of Israel, so that they lifted up their heads no more, and the, and the country was in quietness forty years in the days of Gideon. And Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house, and Gideon had seventy sons of his body begotten, for he had many wives, and his concubine that was in Shechem, she also bare him a son whose name was Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in good old age and was buried in the sepulcher of Joash's father in Ophah and the, of the Abazites. And it came to pass that as soon as Gideon was dead, that the children of Israel turned again and went whoring after ba Baalim and after Baalbeth, their god. And the children of Israel remembered not the Lord their God, who had delivered them out of the hands of all their enemies on every side. Neither showed they kindness to the house of Zerubbabel, namely Gideon, according to all the goodness which he had shown unto Israel. All right, so they had peace for 40 years while Gideon lived. Now, I don't know how old Gideon was when he started all this, but it says he lived to a good old age. He had 70 sons. And he had just a couple of kids. <laughs> You know, I don't know how many daughters he had. He had to have some daughters in all of this uh, mess, too. But 70 sons. That's a lot of kids. Which also indicates that he got pretty wealthy from this battle and from the honor that he got. He had a lot of wives. And, and he did have a lot of wives, obviously. So you don't have 70 kids with just one or two women. I know. Uh, but, uh, and he had a concubine in Shechem that gives birth to Abimelech. And Abimelech is the character of the next chapter. And, uh, but Gideon has a lot of kids, and he's just not doing things God's way. You know, God has never really approved of polygamy. The Bible talks about all the people with their, their multiple wives, but every time it talks about multiple wives, if you look in there, there's problems because of the multiple wives. God's design from creation was one man with one woman, as Jesus said, it was not so in the beginning, you know, and he pointed back to Adam and Eve. One man, one woman, for life, and polygamy, has, every time there's more than one wife in the story, there's problems. There's a lot in the Bible that way. Too. Well, there's lots of them that way, but every single time you've got uh, Abraham who gets a second wife and ends up with trouble. You've got, you know, Jacob who ends up with four wives, and there's nothing but trouble out of four wives. Uh, the first person in the Bible that has two wives uh, ends up with trouble. Uh, Samson's, uh, or excuse me, uh, Samuel's mother is a second wife and the favored wife, and she has nothing but trouble from the wife that keeps having kids. Uh, we see this over and over that there's problems when there's multiple wives, and he has lots of wives, it says. Enough to have 70 kids. And lots, probably lots of problems, but also... It in, you know, having 70 kids tells you that he's being, he's, he, got pay, he got rewarded real well for the battle and or the time after that as people are coming to seek his help for being a judge, uh, obviously paying him for his services, uh, which is not what the judge is supposed to do. And, you know, if they go, go whoring after his ephod, you know, that's well, they went, some money. <laughs> yeah, well, they went whoring after the ephod. When, again, we don't know if that was while he was living or thereafter, because uh, that's just a statement that they went a whoring after it. And it may have been during his lifetime, but I don't think so because they have 40 years of peace. 
So I don't think Gideon fully goes into idolatry worship and all, but he's also not being all that righteous as he's going along. No, just that he ruled for 40 years. And he was probably, he was at least 10 or, you know, 10 or 15 when he, well, he has a young son, so he's going to be 20 or 25 when he, when the battle happens. So it's probably lives to be about 65, 70 years old, though it doesn't tell us just as a, as a guess. You know, if he has a 10 or 12 year old son, even if he had him young, he's 20. So he's, you know, we're looking at 60, 60 by the time he passes away minimum. So, well, I'm only guessing he might have been much older, too, so. 40 years, one wife a year, each wife had three kids. Uh, and it came to pass that as soon as Gideon was dead, the children of Israel turned again and went a-whoring after Baalim and Baal Beroth, their god. Yeah, didn't take them long this time at all. Remember in the past, we kind of, it took them a little while to fall away from God? Here, here as soon as, they've had 40 years of Gideon leading them, hopefully worshiping God. And as soon as he dies, it says immediately after he dies, they go worshiping the idols again. That's a pretty sad state of affairs. That's amazing. Well, but think about how quick and easy sin can take over your life, especially if you've ever walked away from God in your life and you, how easy and quick it happened you know, we make little bad decisions here, little bad decision here, and before long, we're a long ways from God, like wondering how we got there. Yeah, yeah, they're going to go back to what they know. We're only being obedient to Gideon because he's, yeah. and again, we don't know how righteous Gideon is. They're going back to what they can see. Yeah, Gideon was raised in a in a idolatrous family and apparently does something right for God and rules. You know, at least they're not going to idol worship while he's alive. And so he has to be doing something right. How, how good? We don't know because all we have is that he lived that long and they had peace. If he wasn't living correctly and they taken him right back into idolatry worship, they probably would have been judged while he was alive. But again, just as we're going to see in many of the kings, while a good king lives... The people don't openly worship the idols. When that good king dies and a bad king takes over, they go right out into open, open worshiping of the idols. And we see this, we've seen this even in our country. We started very righteous, but we keep getting more and more unrighteous. But if somebody righteous was to take over, the sin would be hidden. It would still be there. You know, I'm sure in Gideon's day, people were still worshiping these idols, but it just wasn't open. They were doing it in secret because we have a righteous person leading who's going to punish idol worship, and so they keep it hidden and under wraps. And when the evil rules, then evil comes out of the woodwork. And we see as soon as he died, it came out of the woodwork. There was not a leader taking over, and it says that... The children of Israel remembered not the Lord who had delivered them on every side. Neither, and I love, the, love this statement, neither did they show kindness to Gideon's family. All right, Gideon, you did a good job, but we're not going to help your kids out at all. And how often do we see that? You know, you did really good, but you know, we're not taking it to the next generation. Now that kind of indicates that his kids probably didn't deserve anything. You know, they... Uh, if you look at Samuel later on, his sons are not worshiping God. Matter of fact, they're taking the best meat out of the offerings. They're sleeping with the women in the, at the, when they come to offer the tabernacle. And Samuel does not, or Eli, excuse me, Eli does not stop it from happening. And God says, Eli, I'm taking you out. And I'm killing your sons because you did not do the job of a father. And then Samuel will be the one that takes over from Eli. But Eli's children were awful. They made it so nobody wanted to come to the, come to the tabernacle to make their offerings. Uh, and here we see his children. You know, I'm not saying his children were that bad, but they obviously weren't worthy of the people's respect. They didn't honor them. Uh, and you know, how often do people, do children of leaders, misbehave and think that they have some special... You know, I'm something special because of who my dad is. 
we see it oftentimes in churches, you know, PKs, preacher kids. You know, they're sometimes the worst kids in the, in the church because they think they're entitled in some cases. Sometimes they're just trying to get their dad's attention. And sometimes it's the people who have too high a standard for these kids. But oftentimes they are pretty bad kids because they think they're entitled. And I think his children were probably that way. You know, we're entitled. And the people aren't going to give them any uh, position. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for what we can learn from Gideon, how he started out well with you and, and that he was able to minister, but that he did, did the wrong thing but with the ephod and people followed it. And Lord, we just ask that you help us always to follow you, not leaders, not individuals, but that we always keep our eyes and focused on you. In Jesus' name, amen.